Good morning. Our passage this morning is from Exodus 32, verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation that said, and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. So we've been going through um, the book of Genesis and now Exodus. We're, we're chronicling the, the, the building of, of God's people. And, and the, the, the title of the series is Living Stones. And we're seeing the character of God and the redemptive plan of God, how he takes sinful, ordinary people and he uses them. He uses them as, as, as a means to an end, that end being the redemption of a broken, fallen, disastrous humanity. And so that's where we've been. And so last week we, we took a look at, at God's call on Moses. And Moses, of course, struggles with this call and says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God says that I will be with you. And, and he says, this is who I am. I am the I am. And so that's what we looked at last week. And it was very, hopefully it was very encouraging. We talked about our identity in Christ and God's love. And this morning we talk about wrath. So Here's, here's the, the text I just want us to focus in on before I give you the, where we're headed for the rest of the morning. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. Behold, it is stiff-necked. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them 
and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, a surface reading of this text, it gives the feel that that God is kind of this irrationally uh, angry entity and Moses is the rational one, the level-headed one, that talks the irrational one off of the ledge. So that's a common way to read this. Like Moses seems to be the rational one. God seems to be the irrational, angry dad who wants to beat his kids. But there's mom. Don't do it. And she's the one. She's the one who has the restraint, has the self-control. And that's honestly the way a lot of people view God, in particular when they're looking at scripture verses like this, which speak of his wrath. It's a thing. It's a common thing. In the New Testament as well. Do you know in the New Testament it talks about the wrath of God more than it does the love of God? Now that may come as news to some of you, but this is, this is a thing we have to wrap our heads around and we have to seek to understand. And our goal this morning is to understand the wrath of God and why it's essential if we're to actually understand his love. Now, that might sound strange to some of you. Hopefully, by the end of the sermon, it will become a little bit more clear. So again, our goal this morning is to understand the wrath of God, why it's essential to actually understand and comprehend his love. Here's here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the context. How'd they get to this place where they're they're worshiping a golden calf? Okay, the context. Second, what's the nature of God's wrath? What is the nature of his wrath? Third thing, we're going to take a look at What's the cause of God's wrath? And lastly, the remedy, the remedy. So please, let's go to the Lord. Pray for me, pray for yourselves, pray that God would speak to us through his word and we would understand so that we might embrace his love. Father, we come to you and we're coming and we're looking at a difficult passage and a difficult subject. And spirit, we need you to guide us in truth. Uh, Lord, there's a lot of ways that we could look at this and, and get it wrong and, and therefore do harm to your character. We can't do harm to you. You're immutable, Lord, but we can view you incorrectly. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us to see the truth of who you are, a loving God who loves justice and mercy. And, Father, show us how wrath plays into that. Uh, Father, we pray that Christ would be exalted this morning, and I pray that you would help me to speak truth and the words that I speak would be your words for your glory. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Okay. First of all, let's get to the context. So last week, Moses receives the call at the burning bush bush. I want you to go to Pharaoh and, and I want to use you to deliver my people from 400 years of bondage. So that's, that's the context. Now what happens next is Moses goes, he goes and he stands before people and he says, let my people go. But, but Pharaoh's heart is hard and it becomes harder and he refuses. And so we see the plagues and we see the Passover and we see the deliverance and we see the parting of the Red Sea and we see the Egyptian army chase them through the Red Sea and we see the Red Sea collapse back over them and we see deliverance and we see deliverance. And, and that brings them to Sinai. So you remember last week when, when Moses said, who am I? That, 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 that I should go before Pharaoh and declare this. 
And God says, so that you will know that I will be with you, you will come back to this mountain and you will worship. That's Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. Well, they're back in Exodus chapter 20. And in Exodus chapter 20, God calls Moses up the mountain and he gives Moses and this new nation his revealed law, the Ten Commandments. You are my people whom I have delivered out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make an idol of yourself, of anything that creeps along the ground or swims or flies in the air. There's only one God and and so forth and so on. So he gives them the law. He gives them the essence of his moral character and what it means to follow him. And in in Exodus chapter 24, verse 7, Israel hears the law and they say, this is good and we agree to obey and worship the Lord only. Twice, they reaffirm that the law and the commandments are good and they twice commit to worship God and God only until they don't. Until... Moses is up on the mountain and he is delayed. And now they come to Aaron and they say, we don't even know what happened to this Moses guy. He's gone. So make for us, make for us gods that will go before us. This isn't, this isn't even a matter of weeks, months, years. This is days. And they are, they are reneging on their commitment to worship the Lord and him only. So God, or Israel rather, worships a golden calf. And then, this scripture that we started with, God's wrath burns hot. So that's the context. That's the context. Now, let's take a look at the nature of this. When, when, it, when you read in the scripture, whether it's the Old Testament, or whether it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, talking about the wrath of God, future judgment, what does it mean? What does this word wrath, my wrath burns hot? What does that mean? This is uh, taken from uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Highly recommend it. If you do not own it, you've never read it. It's been out for decades. Uh, it's about knowing God and the attributes of God. There's a whole chapter on wrath, and this, the opening chapter starts this way. Packer says, wrath is an old English word defined in my dictionary as a deep intense anger and indignation. Anger is defined as a stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism by a sense of injury or insult. Indignation as righteous anger aroused by injustice and baseness. Such is wrath. And wrath, the Bible tells us, is an attribute of God. Now, what does that mean? An attribute is something which is true about God. Now, the most famous attribute of God is God is love. Man, you guys are sharp. That's taken from 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. God is love. It's an attribute. It's part of his essence. It's part of his essence. Wrath is also an attribute. Now, there's a difference, though. Love is an internal attribute of God. That means that it's something that's true about God always, and it has been for all time. You remember last week we talked about G- or God saying, I am, I am that I am. He has no beginning. 
He has, has no end. He always has been. He always will be. He just is. I am. So he has always been loving in eternity past amongst the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He will always be loving in eternity future. Why does God love you? Because it's part of his nature to love. He doesn't look at you and think, man, Brooks is so good, I am just overcome and I have to respond to his awesomeness with love. In other words, his love is not caused by me. Does that make sense? It's an internal attribute. Not so with wrath. Wrath is an external attribute. It's an external attribute. It's a consistent reaction to something that is outside of God. God has, was not angry. There was no wrath until there was sin. There was always love, and he's still loving. But once sin entered the world and his creation was marred, his creation was marred, God reacts to that sin with anger, with wrath. Now, let's go a little deeper. God's wrath stands alongside of and with his patience, love, and readiness to forgive. It stands alongside his patience, love, and readiness to forgive. Micah chapter 7, verse 18, Old Testament prophet. And by the way, the Old Testament prophets are often speaking of the wrath of God and the judgment of God. This is very common for the Old Testament prophets. But they also speak of his wrath standing alongside his mercy. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. Now he's acknowledging the wrath of God. He's acknowledging that God responds against sin. But he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Wrath coexists with God's love. In fact, if God was not loving, do you realize there would be no such thing as God's wrath? The opposite. The opposite of love is not wrath. Do you know what the opposite of love is? Apathy. I heard someone say hate. Yes, but to truly hate someone is to not even care enough to even respond to them. Anger is a response to injustice. If God did not respond in anger against oppression and injustice and sin, he would not be loving towards his creation, nor would he be loving towards himself. Now, let's, we, have to, we have to move into the next part here, which is the cause. The cause. So if wrath is an external attribute that's not, it's not unique to who God is, but it's a reaction to something outside of God, what, what's the reaction? What, what causes the reaction? So what's the cause of God's wrath? In a word, idolatry. I could say sin as well. That would be true. But they're equivalent, and I want to show you why. I want to show you why. So when they come back to Sinai after God has delivered them and they receive the Ten Commandments uh, or after, and they rebel, he says, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. 
They've corrupted themselves. They've turned aside, turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. Now, what's the way that he commanded them? They've turned aside from something. What's the way? Go back to the Ten Commandments. That's the way. Now, what's the way following him, worshiping him only, supposed to bring them? Shalom, peace, blessing, prosperity, goodness. The land flowing with milk and honey. All the things that human beings desire, significance, meaning, prosperity. He says, if you turn from this way, he told them, if you turn from this way, you will be consumed by your enemies and you'll consume one another. So turning from this way is turning from life to death. This is not different from what happens in the garden. I've given you one command. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so what do they do? They eat from the tree and death and sin is the world. They chose to go turn aside from the way that God prescribed, which was shalom, peace, blessing, prosperity, all the things which we desire, significance, and they chose to go their own way and death and sin enters the world. And that's what's happened. They've made for themselves a golden calf and worshiped it and sacrificed to it, saying, these your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. But it's, it's not just sin. There's also something else going on here, which is related to sin, called idolatry. So going back to the commands. And the Lord spoke these words, the beginning of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is above heaven above or in the earth that's beneath or the water that is underneath. So let's just focus in on what is this idolatry. Idolatry, idolatry is, is the sin beneath all sin. You cannot commit adultery without first committing idolatry. You won't lie unless you first commit idolatry. You won't dishonor your mother and father unless you first commit idolatry. You won't covet unless you first commit idolatry. You won't take something that doesn't belong to you unless you first commit idolatry. See, what worship is, is to ascribe glory and honor to that which matters most. And what matters most, according to the scriptures. God and our relationship to him. So God wants us to, to put him in the center of our universe and we are supposed to orbit and order our lives around the worship of him. Idolatry is to take something that doesn't matter, something that's insignificant and make it ultimate. So could be your, your relationship to your spouse. That becomes all important. So now that's the single governing issue in your life and you make that important and everything else bows to it. Where is this Moses fellow? We don't even know where he's at. So make for us golden calves that will go before us. We don't know where Moses is. Moses, they believed, was the deliverer and now Moses is gone so they need a substitute. They need a surrogate deliverer. They need something that represents something powerful. You say, well, we're not idolaters. Oh, yes, we are. Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. It's always cranking out something that we esteem as most valuable above everything else. And that's what we devote our lives to. That's idolatry. It may not look like a golden calf, but it may look like a desire for money. 
It may not look like bowing down and burning incense to a, a graven image, but it might look like a sexual addiction. It might look like a desire to, to have everyone like you. It might look like a thousand and a million other things which determine why you do what you do and why you sin. Here's how it works. Here's how it works. You remember how I said love and wrath are interconnected? When something threatens the object of my affection and my greatest love, I will sin to protect it. it if something threatens the object of my affection, it will invoke my wrath. So you've heard me talk about my pride and anger, right? How does that work? When I am the object of my own affection and I am the most important being to me, if you disrespect me, it provokes my wrath. You say, well, that's selfish. Exactly. That's destructive. Exactly. That's how idolatry works. Every human injustice, form of oppression, and sin against another human being begins with idolatry. Why does a person lie? Because what they esteem most valuable is that they, they, uh, they lie to protect that which they have or to gain something they don't yet have. Why does a person commit murder? They commit murder first because they're, they're angry. Why are they angry? Because something that they esteem as of greatest value is being threatened. Do you see how this all works together? You cannot sin except by entering into idolatrous relationship with something. Whether it's a golden calf or you just want the approval of your peers. That's how it works. That's how it works. That's what it is. The sin beneath the sin. It's the cause of all injustice. Now there's consequences too. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the inequities of the father on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, I, I have to address this because don't raise your hand, but I know some of you are looking at this passage and you're just, you're, you're, it just it doesn't seem right. I'm just not, not comfortable with this whole wrath conversation and, and then God says he's jealous. Okay, if Brooks is wrathful, is that a good thing? It's not a trick question. No. If Brooks is jealous, do we attribute that as something which is good for people to be. No. So now God is both wrathful and jealous, and yet we're still supposed to consider him good? Yes. Why is it good for God to be wrathful and good for God to be jealous? Here's why. The moment you turn your affection from him and you put it on something and your allegiance to something which is not God... It means your utter destruction. Okay? It me How many of you are mothers? Do you know what the phrase mama bear means? What does that mean? 
It means that a mother becomes wrathful and inquires super strength and an ability to consume and destroy all threats when her little baby is threatened. Idolatry threatens God's little babies. You would no more ask a mother to accept the abuse of her children or a spouse to accept the cancer which eats the flesh of their spouse, then why would we ask God not to become angry and wrathful and jealous against that which destroys his children? God cannot be loving unless he is angry and wrathful and ready to consume that which destroys his children. Does anybody sense the dilemma that is being created here? Somebody asked me recently, why doesn't God just stop all atrocity? Great question. Why not? For God to prevent murder, he has to prevent anger. For God to prevent sexual abuse, he has to prevent lust. Do tell how that's going to happen. I'll tell you how he could do it. He could consume all of us. Do you see the dilemma? The thing which is threatening your marriage, your children, the prosperity of human beings in general, is idolatry. So, well, God should stop it. And how do you express that he's going to do that? I'll tell you one way. Annihilate anyone with breath because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we're all idolaters. This is a problem. But this is, he would be consistent. If he were to do this, he would be good, he would be just, and he would be holy. If, if he were to consume them and start over with Moses, he would be good, just, and holy. His character would not, not one ounce diminish from, from who he is. That's the cause of God's wrath. So what's the remedy? Look at chapter 32, verse 10. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. How is that a solution? It's an invitation. So I don't see an invitation. I just see God telling Moses to step out of the way because I'm going to annihilate these people. Do you realize that God doesn't need to have a conversation with Moses to do what he needs to do? Why is he inviting him into the conversation? Because he wants Moses to step up and join him in his plan to redeem, redeem his creation. And Moses knows God's character better than anyone else. And he appeals to God on the basis of his own character. If you do this, if you do this, the Egyptians will just see and they will assume that you brought them in the wilderness to consume them. And besides, you made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as Moses is speaking, it's not recorded in the text, but God is nodding his head. Exactly. And it doesn't state it here, but it's implied. God's like, and so what should I do then? 
Well, we see that God relents, which means to change a course. The course that he was on would have been totally just, would have been totally righteous, would have been totally in character with his holiness and his goodness. But Moses interceded and God relented of his wrath. That means he changed course. He didn't change his character. He didn't change his nature. He's still angry and wrathful against sin, and he's still bent on the destruction and annihilation of sin. But now he's going a different direction. Moses intercedes, and then God relents. But how? How? What's changed? What's changed? Have the people down below at the base of the mountain, have they stopped being idolaters? No, they're still worshiping the golden calf. So how is it that God is wrathful against something which is destroying his own people and it's still destroying them? Well, fast forward, there is discipline, there is consequences, but he does not annihilate all of them. How? What's changed? Later in the chapter, we didn't have this read, but later in the chapter, the next day Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin, for they've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Atone for their sin. What is Moses speaking of here? Moses understands that, that justice demands that, that, that sin be punished. Moses understands that if, if God is to be just, he, he can't just wink at sin. He can't just turn a blind eye. So Moses says, perhaps I can atone. Atone means something is going to take the place Something or someone is going to receive what they should receive, but instead, that something or someone is going to receive that, and they're going to receive what they don't deserve, which is mercy and love. And Moses isn't sure how. He says, perhaps I can atone. I don't know. I'll, I'll go before him. And so what is it? You know what? If you're, not going to, if you're not going to have mercy, then block me out. So Moses is saying, I'll go. I'll take the punishment. I'll take the fall. So that, so that justice can be served. But if, if God annihilates Moses, is that justice served? No, he's one guy and he's an idolater too. Just in a different way. But it foreshadows something that is going to happen. It foreshadows the coming of a, someone who's greater than Moses, it says in Hebrews. Someone who is made in every way like you and I. Someone who is tempted in every way as you and I are tempted, but did not sin. Someone who is, who is, who, who matters, who is weighty, who is glorious because they themselves are the great I am. That someone is Jesus who being in very nature, God did not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but he took the form of a servant and became obedient even unto death. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans, when he's explaining what the gospel is, the good news of Jesus Christ, he says, listen, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have hammered 
little golden calves and are worshiping them right to this day. All of us have done that. But we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. How many of you have used the word propitiation in the last month? (laughs) Only one, two, a couple theological nerds here. What does the word propitiation mean? It means to satisfy wrath. We don't use that word, but God does. Jesus became the propitiation by his blood. What does that mean? It means that the wrath of God has been completely satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, let me clear up some theological garbage here. This does not mean that Jesus came to earth and said, No, Dad, don't! It was the plan for all eternity from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit's perspective. The cross is plan A, not plan B. In the divine counsel between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past, before there was sin to provoke wrath, God had a plan, and that was to become man and to receive his own wrath so he could continue to shower out his love and his mercy on those who don't deserve it. That's what propitiation means. So when God sees you, his beloved daughter or son, there is no, I just want to smack him. It's not there. There is no wrath. There is no wrath for anyone who is in Christ. None. There's no condemnation. And it's to be received by faith. You, you, you don't jump on the treadmill of good works and show God how awesome you are so that you can get out of his underneath from his wrath. No. You run to the cross. You throw yourself at Jesus' feet. You thank him for giving his life and you receive him as your Lord and your Savior. And then from that moment on, he sees you as dearly loved. He sees you as adopted. He sees you as redeemed. He sees you as significant. He sees you. You remember that list that I went through last week? That's what he sees. Because that's who you are. Maybe. That assumes something I'm not willing to assume and you dare not. And that is this, that you've received his invitation. Most famous gospel verse in the New Testament. John 3.16. I'm going to read it, but I'm going to read past it. Have you received this mercy? Jesus says in John 3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish and have everlasting life. Have you believed in him? Have you placed your faith in the risen Christ who has received the punishment from God so that you could receive reconciliation to God and receive shalom, peace, acceptance, mercy? Have you received him? 
Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God sent Christ so that the world might not receive wrath. That's what condemned means, to receive wrath. But he doesn't stop there. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Praise God. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you know what Jesus is saying? It means that some of those who hear these words right now have not received, have not received mercy because they have not received Christ because they are worshiping idols and they prefer those idols to Jesus. And God in his respect of your human dignity, if you will, will allow you, will allow you to go your own way and reject him and ultimately receive the wrath that Christ received. You see, some of you are like, ah, that just doesn't seem, doesn't seem right. What do you think heaven is? Heaven is to be enthralled with the person and worth of Jesus Christ for all of eternity. If that's not what you want, that is what you will receive. A place where you are not enthralled with his person, his beauty, and his majesty, but you are left to your own devices to pursue your own ways. And that, by definition, is hell. And that, by definition, is where God's wrath is eternally poured out on all those who reject Christ. I don't say that with glee. I don't say that with joy because there's no joy in it. But that's why God gives an invitation to all who believe. And God is so loving and so gracious that he will even use a selfish desire to avoid his wrath as a motive for fleeing to him. Do you realize that the person who comes to Christ because they don't want to go to hell has nothing to do with loving Jesus? And God's perfectly okay with that. Why? Because as you run to him and your, in, your infantile understanding of his love and his mercy, which doesn't really love Jesus, but just wants to avoid hell, here's what happened. You begin to see, you begin to appreciate his great love and his great mercy and your love grows for him. So that years down the road, you begin to see that you desire Christ above all else. You no longer think about wrath. You just think about who Jesus is. And that's what happens when the greater love displaces the lesser loves of idolatry. So first, receive his mercy. And second, join his mission. Moses didn't need to receive mercy. He'd already received it. But he was invited in on a mission to intercede for those who had not. And do you know what that's what this body of Christ is? The reference here is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. For anyone who is in Christ, they're new creations. The old had gone. Behold, all things are made new. And we who were once enemies have been reconciled to God. And we've been given the message of reconciliation. And Paul says, we are ambassadors of Christ. Do you know what an ambassador is? It's a representative. Do you know what an ambassador does? It does what Moses does. It intercedes for those at the foot of the mountain who are worshiping golden idols. Your kids, your spouse, your neighbors, your co-workers, 
They all rising up to play and dancing around their various idols, ignorant of, of the love of God, completely oblivious to the wrath of God, and they don't care. And you and I have called to be ambassadors. For those who have received Christ are called to share Christ. And we don't, unlike Moses, we don't have to go before God and say, I don't know, maybe I'll atone for your sin. We don't have to do that. We know who's atoned for sin. We can go to the Father now and we can intercede with the chief intercessor who is Jesus, who is at the right hand of the Father, interceding daily for those who have trusted in him. And we can say, Lord God, would you pour out your spirit on these people who don't know you? Would you give me the courage and equip me to be the one who shares Christ with them? That's what we're called to. Because we're not supposed to just revel in the love of God without sharing the love of God. So I encourage you, receive his mercy and then join his mission. Join his mission. To join his mission, you've got to get involved in the body of Christ. You've got to get involved in the body of Christ. We have a membership uh, class coming up soon. Encourage you to go to our website, learn about grace. If you're not into the QR code, you like the old-fashioned paper version, there's paper versions of these. Let us know your questions about how you can get involved. If you want to receive Christ, if you want to follow him, but you're not sure what the next steps are, go there, click that, learn about grace. Come talk to me afterwards or any of the prayer team that's up here. We want to help you take your next step following Jesus. Or if you want to help, you want to say, I want to be a minister of mercy. I want to be someone who expresses the grace of God to the community. And you're interested in helping, let us know. If you have a prayer request, let us know. We'd like to come alongside you. Pray with you, pray for you, so that you can receive God's mercy and so you can be equipped to share his mercy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for this mercy, Lord. Thank you for your patience with us. Each of us are deserving of wrath, but you have chosen to send your son so that we might not perish, but we might receive everlasting peace, everlasting life, everlasting shalom, everlasting love, everlasting mercy. Father, from you, Lord, thank you. Thank you. I pray for the person here who has not yet received that. Today would be the day they would embrace you. Today would be the day they receive you. And Lord, help us as a church to be ministers of mercy, ambassadors for you, intercessors, interceding for, for our friends, our family, and our enemies, and all those on, to the ends of the earth, Lord, that they might come to know you and worship you as the one true God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go in grace. We'll see you next week.